Good morning. Good to be with you today. Uh, please keep your Bibles right where Cameron was reading just a moment ago, John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47 will be our text for this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we began to examine Jesus' discourse before the religious leaders in verses 17 through 47 of this chapter. That's where the discourse is contained. And we focused, last week we focused on verses 17 through 29, where Jesus sought to establish His divinity. And that's really one of the big points of the Gospel of John, is is to show that Jesus is God. But Jesus, in the first part of His discourse, establishes His divinity by declaring how He is equal with the Father in five ways. I won't go back through them. You can always go online and listen to the message if you missed it. But They're all there in 17 through 29. In the next section, which is really the rest of the chapter, verses 30 through 47, Jesus does the same thing, but He comes at it from a different angle. He basically transforms the setting into a, a type of courtroom. It's, it's as if he's on, he puts himself on trial here, and, and he's going to call witnesses that are going to witness on his behalf, witnesses that, that will affirm who he is, his identity. And not only will these witnesses that we're going to look at affirm Jesus' divine identity or divinity, they will also indict the religious leaders for rejecting Him, those who are questioning Him, those who are condemning Him, those who He is standing before. And so it's kind of a a two-fold witnessing thing that happens. They they help to establish the identity of Jesus or to confirm it, and at the same time, simultaneously, the religious leaders are uh, kind of indicted for rejecting Him. There are four witnesses... In the text, you've got the witness of John the Baptist, which is represented in verses 33 through 36a. You've got the witness of Jesus' miracles or the works that He did, the signs and wonders. That's in 36b. You've got the witness of the Father. That's 37 through 38. And then you've got the witness of Scripture, of the Bible. Scripture here would be the Old Testament. And that's in 39 through 47. That's the the largest section that we'll spend the most time on because it's bigger than the others. So we're going to look at those four witnesses right there today. As I said, they all witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humbly come before you now and acknowledge your presence and your power, your holiness, your righteousness, your perfection. We also acknowledge that we are none of those things, and that by sheer mercy and grace, many of us here have been made sons and daughters of yours through adoption. We are so thankful and grateful for that work that you have done for us. And God, we need your help this morning as your children. It's tough for us to understand these things, even though we have the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would be victorious over our preconceived notions, over our own ideas, 
our own understanding, Lord, that you would teach us and train us this morning. And most of all, you would sanctify us, which means make us like Jesus. That is the goal of our salvation. God, you have a specific message for us here that that has to do with evangelism. And I pray, God, that you would set a fire within our hearts to reach the lost. I pray that, Lord, especially during this time of year. Thank you for all that you will do. May you receive all the glory, honor, and praise for this sermon, for these songs, for these prayers, for the announcements, for everything that we do, for our work, our families, everything. God, may you be glorified in all that we are, all that we have, all that we do. That is the goal. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've got to frame it first. We've got to get a little context going here. And we're going to look at 30 through 32 first. The witnesses are not represented there. This is where Jesus basically sets the stage for where he's going to go here. I'll just read it again. Jesus says, and again, he's speaking to the religious leaders who are persecuting him. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And then he says this in 32, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Stop right there. Our section begins with Jesus reiterating his connectedness to the Father. That is exactly what he's been doing in the previous section. Remember, he's showing that he's equal with the Father in all these different ways. And he, right here, as he's beginning to transition into another way to present his deity through these witnesses, he just reiterates how he is connected to the Father and how he has come to, to do the Father's will. Jesus never did anything outside of the Father's will. He came to execute, to fulfill the Father's will he came, when he came, he did nothing on his own, nothing separated from the Father, nothing disconnected from the Father's will. He also was led as a, a human being, because he's God incarnate, so he is fully human. He follows the Father's example as a person, just as Adam did prior to the fall. Adam was led by the Father prior to the fall, and when he sinned, that disconnect happened. And Jesus, as a man, does exactly what the Father instructs him to do, perfect obedience, not just as God, but as a man. That is so important for us to get our minds around. All was lost through a man. All had to be gained through a man, right? And so Jesus, as a full man, seeks to do the Father's will He says in Colossians that he is the exact representation of the Father, which is amazing. So he's reiterating his connectedness. He does nothing on his own. In verse 31, Jesus sets the stage for the courtroom drama that is about to unfold in the rest of the text. He begins by reminding the religious leaders of their own law under The Jewish legal system, if a person bears witness to himself, his testimony will be disqualified. It's like going to court 
and making a claim, and then the only person you have there to testify about what you've done or what you saw or what you're involved in or what happened to you is you, not going to get very far. And that's exactly how the law works. And that shows the brilliant mind of God. That way people can't get over on each other and all that. You had to have witnesses. When it came to establishing the truthfulness of a matter in a court of law or before a king, because before they had courts, they had the courtroom of the king, and kings settled matters. Look at the life of Solomon. He settled a lot of matters. You had to have witnesses there. You had to have multiple witnesses, two to three talks about this in Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15. Jesus transforms the setting, which wasn't a courtroom, into a courtroom. And He basically tells them that He's not the only one who bears witness to who He is. Jesus understands that there's really no validity, there's no power to a singular testimony. These guys need to hear it from others. That's the way the court worked. And Jesus says, I'm not the only one who says these things about myself. There are others who bear testimony to my identity. In verse 32, Jesus basically says that he has supporting witnesses, which means that his testimony meets the legal requirements and must be taken seriously. In other words, you can't just blow this off because he's speaking for himself. There's others who will speak on his behalf. And now we've got a serious, we've got a real trial. We've got a real court case here. We've got a real situation. In the following verses, Jesus presents his four witnesses. Let's look at the first witness. Already mentioned him, the witness of John the Baptist, 33 through 36a. Jesus says this to them as he calls his first witness, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare Israel for the arrival of Messiah and to identify Messiah when he came on the scene. That was the entire purpose for his ministry. At one point, the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court comprised of legalistic experts and Pharisees and Sadducees and this kind of hodgepodge of different Jewish leaders. At one point, the, the Sanhedrin sent a delegation of religious leaders and temple police to the riverside to question John. John's ministry, I'm talking about John the Baptist, had exploded and it, it seemed like the entire nation was going out to see him and to visit him and to see what was going on and maybe to participate in his preaching and baptism. And, and of course, the Sanhedrin said, well, what is going on out there? It looks like somebody just planted a really big church out there by the Jordan. Well, we're the big church. What's going on out there? We better send somebody out there to check it out. And when those leaders and police, they actually sent police with them, if you can believe that. Maybe they were thinking they'd arrest him. When they got there, they asked John if he was the Christ. He denied it. They asked him if he was Elijah, maybe returned one of the great prophets. He said no. They asked him if he was the prophet, capital P. That's the prophet that Moses talked about, and that is really Jesus, who that capital P prophet is. He said no. He replied, I'm none of them. 
I am the one whom Isaiah spoke about, the one who clears a straight path for the Lord. John chapter 1, 19 through 23. Remember when we studied that a while ago? Jesus tells the religious leaders here that, that he does not need men to testify about him, but John came for that purpose nonetheless. You see, they, they knew who John was, and they knew John's message, and they knew John preached Jesus in all of that. They knew who John was. They knew why he came and who he was talking about all the time, Jesus. And in a sense, Jesus is reminding them of all of that. But Jesus says, it's not that I need men to testify about me. Jesus also called John a burning and shining lamp. Why? Because he preached about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. That is, that is the thrust of John's message. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God at one point even points to Jesus and says, there He is, there's the guy, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go after Him. Don't stay with me. I'm just a messenger. And quite frankly, and Jesus points it out here, the people of Israel rejoiced when John the Baptist burst onto the scene. He was the first Jewish prophet to speak in 400 years. You know, you have that 400-year period between the Testaments, the Old and the New, and there was that 400 years of silence. John broke that silence. For the first time in 400 years, God began to speak through a prophet to his people. So the people were like, whoa, we haven't heard anything for centuries. And now God is speaking to us again. This is really significant. And so that drew a lot of attention to John and his ministry. His, his sermons, his baptism ritual, which was preparatory to the coming Messiah, drew thousands and thousands of spiritually hungry, spiritually desperate people to his location. So Jesus isn't telling them, his first witness, witness isn't somebody that they weren't familiar with. He's reminding them, remember John the Baptist, the one that Herod beheaded? And I think that had already happened by now. He bore witness about me. He preached about me, the Lamb. I'm not speaking on my own behalf. I have witnesses, guys. And John the Baptist is one of them. But he says that he has, he tells them that he has greater witnesses than John. I've got, I've got better, greater, more respected witnesses than even him, and he was the greatest of all the prophets. Jesus said there's no, no greater prophet than him. So we're going to get pretty serious here, aren't we? And guess what? There's, you, you've got that kind of crescendo effect going here. You start with John, and then you've got the miracles. You've got the Father, which is huge. You've got the testimony of Scripture. So we're kind of starting at the small end, and we're working our way up. Let's look at the second witness, the witness of Jesus' miracles, verses, or actually just verse 36b. Jesus put it like this, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles Jesus performed were given to Him by the Father to perform for the express purpose of witnessing to the fact that he had indeed been sent by the Father as the divine Messiah to make a substitutionary atonement for sinners like you and I or you and me. 
Every miracle that Jesus performed screamed, I have come from God. I have been sent from the Father. I am divine. I have the Father's power. His miracles were actually witnessed by just about everyone, including the religious leaders. How do I know that? How do I know that the guys that are questioning him and trying to anathematize and damn him right now, they want to kill him, how do I know that they saw the miracles that Jesus performed? John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. They sent Nicodemus, who was one of the leaders, to question Jesus about his miracles, didn't they? They knew. They saw the miracles. But because of their love of religion, because of their hardened hearts, because of their inability to comprehend spiritual truths, because of their missing faith, they actually attributed Jesus' supernatural power to the forces of darkness. I cited the verse last week. I'll read it again. Sounds something like this here. I think this is a paraphrase of it. No wonder he, speaking of Jesus, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Luke chapter 11, verse 15. So they saw the miracles and the miracles witnessed to who he is, his divinity that he'd been sent by the Father, and yet they attributed the power and the miracles to evil. And what did Jesus do when he went around and performed miracles? We just saw him heal a guy who'd been uh, lame, who couldn't walk for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. That sounds like something the demons would be interested in doing is restoring somebody's ability to walk, right? Demons don't do nice things for people. I've seen the exorcist spitting pea soup, getting all crazy. That's real. I don't know, but they're not in the habit of doing good things for people. They... They follow the advice and instruction of the father of lies and the original murderer, really, and they do terrible things, and yet they tie what Jesus is doing to the demonic realm. It's just insane to me. So we've got the witnesses of John the Baptist. We've got the witnesses of Jesus' miracles, the things that he did. Both testify to the fact that he'd been sent by the Father, both testify to his divinity, his godness, right? Let's look at the third witness. The third witness is the witness of the Father. 37 and 38, Jesus keeps it going here. He's got them going. They're probably pretty angry by now. They already were because of the first part of his discourse, but they're really ticked. But he's going to keep them getting ticked here. He says, and the Father who sent me, they didn't like that, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. That's an indictment that they didn't even know God. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The Father himself bore witness about Jesus. Not only through the the supernatural signs he gave him to perform, but through his own voice. There were two major events where this occurred. The baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus. You recall those events? 
You recall how the Father spoke from heaven over the Son in a booming voice for all to hear? During His baptism, the Father declared in a loud, audible voice, This is my beloved Son. He's from me, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22, it's in the Synoptic Gospels. During His transfiguration, where He was transformed from the, the appearance of a mere man, which he was fully man, into, a glorif- into the glorified Son of God, right? He was transfigured, and, 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 and those who were there were given a glimpse of his glory. During that transfiguration up on the Mount of Olives, the Father also declared in a loud, audible voice, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew 17, 5, Mark 9, 7. The apostles Peter, James, and John were first-hand witnesses to the Father's testimony about Jesus at the transfiguration. They heard His voice. They were there. They were the ones that Jesus brought up to the mountaintop with Him. Listen to what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 17-18. He said, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. There you have, you have three witnesses to Jesus right there in the apostles who actually witnessed the Father witnessing to Jesus. They were there. They heard it. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, The Father's verbal testimony about Jesus is infallibly true and of infinitely greater importance than any human testimony. Amen to that. Jesus' statement, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, was a further rebuke to the unbelieving Jews, in particular the religious leaders that were here. No one can see God in the full glory of His infinite holy essence, Exodus 33.20. However, there were times throughout Israel's history when God audibly or visibly interacted with His people. For example, He spoke to Moses. He spoke to the Israelites of the Exodus and to the prophets. He also appeared in some physical manifestation of His presence to Jacob, Gideon, Manoah, and others. We see these things in the Old Testament. Yet the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day, who had both the Old Testament Scriptures and the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ, did not have God's Word abiding in them, for they did not believe the one whom the Father sent. This is why they were unable to see Him and hear Him. They did not have the Word of God abiding in them. And that is just insane if you think about it. These guys are the religious leaders of the nation. How are you a religious leader in any sort of capacity and not have the Word of God in you, abiding in you? How is that even possible? Well, it is possible. And I believe it's happening today, just as it happened back then. There are many churches where... The Word of God and the love of God is not abiding in the minister who's up front. There's plenty of charlatans and fakes out there. They're all over the place. This was happening then. These guys refused 
to listen to Jesus, God's final revelation to mankind. It talks about that in the book of Hebrews. He had spoke to us in all these different ways, but today He has spoken to us through His Son is what it says. In doing so, they displayed their total ignorance of God, since those who reject Jesus cannot know the Father. That's exactly what Jesus said back in verse 23. People go around claiming that they know God, but they reject Jesus or or something about Jesus. And the bottom line is they do not know God. It's amazing to me that people can be incredibly religious, super pious and straight-laced, right? They can walk a tightrope of religion far better than I ever could. As soon as I step on that tightrope, my legs open, I go ba-boing. I mean, I'm, t- I'm just trying, I try, and I try. I just can't do it. I quit trying to do that. I'm trying to rest in His grace, and, and every next opportunity I have, I'm trying to do the right thing. That's all you can do. That's what God calls us to do. The idea, though, that there are people who just are so... Re- I don't drink caffeine. I smelled a beer one time. I ran and did 29 Hail Marys. There are people that are insanely religious around us, and yet they don't know God. They think they know God. They think they worship God. But because they reject Jesus or something about Jesus like His deity, they don't know God, not even a little bit. They know religious constructs, They know religious inventions. Take Islam, for example. I don't like to pick on Islam or any other religion. I just want to show the fallacy of it. What is Islam? Islam is a religious construct developed by Muhammad who borrowed from Babylonian astrology and Judaism. It's all it is. And yet there are billions, not maybe not billions, but maybe a billion people, and most of which are uber-religious, insanely pious, that belong to it. But it comes from Babylonian astrology, the moon god. Literally, I've done the research. But they won't say that. How about Scientology? That's a religious construct developed by L. Ron Hubbard. I bring it up because there's been the show on A&E with that Leah, whatever her name is, who's trying to destroy it. L. Ron Hubbard. There was a book that that came out years ago. I remember that was late 70s or maybe 80s. I don't remember. I I remember seeing it in my parents' house. I opened it up. I thought I was watching Star Star Wars episode. It was just weird and just bizarre. But it's just a religious construct that, that has a ton of followers. Mormonism is a religious construct developed by Joseph Smith and and girded up and and was built up and strengthened by Brigham Young. It's just a religious construct. Jehovah Witnessism is a religious construct developed by Charles Taze Russell. Here's my point, not to beat up on these other religions. Well, some of those are Christian religions. Well, no, they're not Christian. They're not Christian. Here's my point. People are exceedingly religious within each of these constructs but they do not know God because they reject the totality of who Jesus is and the totality of what He accomplished. We we don't... Listen, I say this not to their shame, maybe a little bit, 
but that we could be properly evangelistic. Because I'll tell you what, there are a lot of Christians out there that think Mormons are no different than them or Jehovah's Witnesses or anyone else. Scientology, it's just got a kind of a little weird thing to it, but they love Jesus because they got a big old cross in their signage. You, you can't properly witness and evangelize a Jehovah's Witness if you think they're Christian. You need to understand what they believe and what they don't believe. And, and the method that we use for Islam or anything else is the gospel. That's it. The gospel. The, the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel in a nutshell. But when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the God-man. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of their imagination. Very important that we understand this. People are insanely religious within these constructs and, and all these other constructs. There are thousands and thousands of religions. Many of them acknowledge Jesus in some capacity, but Jesus in his discourse tells us that if they reject him or reject his deity, if they reject any aspect of who he is, any attribute, anything about him, they don't know God. Jesus is the one that, that said these things. It's not me. You might think, well, you're just not politically correct. You're not very sensitive to others or whatever. I, I think Jesus is the one with the problem, guys. He's the one that said, if you, if, you don't, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father. I don't make this up. It's what he says. And, 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 and it's exactly why he's presenting these witnesses. Because these guys maybe thought they could have an aspect of Jesus, or maybe not at all. And he's telling them, without me, you're lost. You might be religious, but that means nothing. You remember how Nicodemus responded to Jesus when Nicodemus was made to realize because he had never been born again, he'd never had faith or any of those true things? He was super religious, but he never had that. Remember how he responded? You've got to be kidding me. I'm an old man. I've been doing this my whole life. You're a 30-year-old guy. You're not going to be telling me what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. That was his attitude. That was his disposition at first until he got saved. People don't like to hear this stuff. They don't want Jesus alone. They don't want grace alone. Somehow people want to glory in it. And until we realize there is no glory in the salvation of sinners, no glory in my salvation for me, you're never going to get anywhere. It's about death to self. All the glory goes to God. And every religion is about earning your way, and, and, and there's no way to earn with the true God. The only one who could ever earn with Him was Jesus. Jesus earned our righteousness. And all the, the work that you do trying to, trying to get God's favor and attention and all that as an unbeliever, as a person who does not have faith, means nothing. In fact, I think it will be held against you on the day of judgment if you don't get saved before then. It's by grace through faith. Fourth witness. I think these guys are lit up right now. Jesus isn't done with them. The fourth witness he calls to testify, to witness to his divinity, is the witness of Scripture. I love how he wraps up his, his discourse with this, because this is truly what these men that he was correcting and rebuking were all about. They were all about the Scripture. The witness of Scripture, 39 through 47. He says this to them, You search 
the scriptures. The idea is they're actively studying. It's not that they searched it and they're done. They continue to search and to study and to focus and to meditate and, and to memorize, right, and to recite and to preach. They're all about the scripture. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The religious leaders were pretty meticulous when it came to the study of Scripture. They were known for being fastidious, known for being scholarly. They were referred to as experts in the law, Luke eleven forty six. But there was a major flaw in their hermeneutical or translation or study approach. They were what I refer to as eisegetical instead of exegetical. I'll explain what these things mean. When a person interprets Scripture eisegetically, he or she layers their own ideas, their own biases, their own traditions onto the text. It's like when they pick up the Bible, they're not looking to the Bible for meaning. They're coming at it with their meaning, and they put it right on top of the Scripture. They layer it right into it. They bend the text. They, make, they try to make the text conform to their preferred theology, to their traditions, whatever they hold dear to their hearts, regardless of context, regardless of scriptural continuity. Scriptural continuity is the idea of Scripture affirms Scripture. If Scripture says something over here in Genesis and it says something over here, there's, there's a continuity between it. The word is the revelation of God held up in the Scripture here is self-affirming. One truth is going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be continued through the Scripture and affirmed through the Scripture. There's this continuity that runs through the Bible. But the eisegetical person, he, he comes at it, and he comes at it with his preconceived notions, with his understanding, and he reads the text, text, and then he puts his meaning on it. And then it ends up affirming whatever it is that he wants it to affirm. This happens all the time. I used to preach this way. I just didn't know any better. And I, I guess we've got to give some grace to some of those out there who don't understand how you're supposed to study the Word. Maybe they've never taken a hermeneutics class. Maybe they've never learned how to preach the Word. I, I don't know. It happens. Hermeneutics is a pretty important subject. It's basically the science of interpretation. You know, they come at it from the outside, regardless of the context. And I think ultimately what the eisegetical person does is they, they end up making the text mean what they want it to mean. Right? They end up making it mean what they want it to mean, not what it actually means. For example, 
the scriptures show that Messiah is both a suffering servant and a conquering king. Right? And Christian understanding is he came first as a suffering servant, the second coming, the second advent, he comes as a conquering king. We get it. But the scripture shows that he is both. And yet the Jews put all of the emphasis onto the second description. They want a conquering king, and that's it. They want a Messiah who will kick their enemies' butts and liberate them and exalt them in his kingdom. The desire for a conqueror is so strong, the Jews gloss over and even reinterpret the passages that present Messiah as a suffering servant, like Isaiah 53, one of my favorite passages. They just make Isaiah 53 affirm what they want, or they attribute that to someone other than Messiah. It's what they do. That's the eisegetical approach. Well, this couldn't mean that our Messiah suffers, so it's got to be somebody else it's talking about. You know, when it comes to those passages, they put their own ideas, biases, and traditions onto the text. And in doing this, they miss an important feature of Messiah and thus miss Messiah altogether. Because you can't just believe he's a conqueror. Because then you don't understand the atonement. You don't understand your sin. You don't understand what he came to do. And you don't know God. And don't try to say you do. You miss it. And I said, Jesus, it happens. And yet when a person interprets Scripture exegetically, not ice, exegetically, he or she upholds the context. They understand the, uh, the, the type of literature they're dealing with, whether they're dealing with a song or historical narrative. Uh, they, they understand the context, the who, what, where, when, and why it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, what it means. They understand all of that. They, they study all of that. See, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work and prep that goes into exegesis, but none into eisegesis. And that might be one of the main reasons why so many churches are eisegetical today. Because the pastors are so stinking busy running this event and getting pizza for this and doing that and getting the donkeys for the petting zoo and doing all this crazy, stupid stuff that nobody needs. They don't have time to study the Word. So they come up with a subject and they throw verses at it. And they make those verses mean what they want it to mean. That's eisegesis. You ever been in a church that does that? I have. But the exegetical person, the one who understands the hermeneutic of it, the one who lives, a, a, a study, lives out a study discipline, they're not a better person, they just understand what they're supposed to be doing. They uphold the context, they, they, they maintain the scriptural continuity, and they draw the meaning from the text itself, not put meaning onto it. Even when they find out that it doesn't mean what they thought, they yield. Dang it, that doesn't do what I want. Guess I got to adjust and change my life. Amen. This is the authority, not us. The eisegetical person thinks he's the authority. And in our section, the reason why I bring this little hermeneutical kind of thing up, in our section, the religious leaders were unable to identify Jesus as Messiah because of what? Their lack of faith, because of their attitude, because of their eisegetical approach to interpreting Scripture. Psalms 45, 6 through 7, and Psalm 110 verse 1 clearly show that Messiah is divine, but that's not how the religious leaders interpreted those texts. No. They either twisted them to conform with their conqueror view or they attributed them to someone else, someone other than Messiah. See how they twist it up? 
When Jesus showed that he is equal with, with the Father in the previous section, he affirmed those psalms. He proved, he showed that he is divine. He also proved that every other passage that testifies to his divinity is true and that his witness is true. If the religious leaders had, had studied the Scriptures rightly by faith and, and with the correct attitude and with the, with the right hermeneutic, they might have responded to Jesus like Andrew. We have found the Messiah instead of saying, how can we kill Him? Now their zeal for the Scripture was commendable. But because they were unwilling to come to Jesus, the sole source of eternal life, it did not result in salvation. Clinging to their superficial system of self-righteousness by works. That's all religion, right? Except for Christianity. In their stubborn unbelief, they became ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own. They didn't understand that righteousness is alien. It's foreign. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus. The work that Jesus... They didn't understand that. So what do they do? They try to obey the laws. They set up laws. They set up rules. They work fervently to obey them so that they can acquire a sense of righteousness so God will accept them. All the while, what they're doing is nothing more than filthy rags. This, this what is happening in this text here with these guys is classic case of false religion. I've already pointed to where people think they can earn their way with God through piety and good deeds. Isaiah tells us that the good deeds of unbelievers, any good deed done outside of faith in Jesus Christ is nothing more than a, a filthy rag 64, 6, Isaiah. It's just a filthy rag, and I won't tell you what kind of rag. In verses 41 through 42, Jesus omnisciently, He knows all things, omnisciently exposes the thoughts and motives of some who are present. People honored and glorified Jesus in the, in the public setting, but behind closed doors they slandered Him, they repudiated Him. You ever had that happen to you where somebody treats you just so so spot on and so kind and so nice. And then, you know, later on, a couple of days later, you find out they're talking a bunch of trash about you. And you're like, wow, I just talked to that person. They were so nice and I guess they hate me. Okay, whatever. I love Jesus. Bye-bye. Well, they did that to Jesus all the time. They praised him for his miracles. They, you know, wow, you're, you're great. You're so cool. You're awesome. I really like your beard. I've been growing mine for six months. It's not quite like yours. I mean, just, I don't know. I'm making that up. But they just, you know, lip service. You're great. And then at home, honey, I, don't, that guy, I think that guy's a nut. I think he's crazy. I think they're going to kill him. I think I'll help him. During daylight, they smiled at Jesus. They complimented his ministry. They gave him glory. But at night, they plotted for how to kill him. Even the religious leaders did this. And Jesus knew what was missing in their hearts, why they, they did this. Jesus said they had no love for God. And why is it that they had no love for God? This is what stirred that slander and repudiation and hatred in them, that rejection of Him. Why? How does Jesus know they had no love for God and that's what led them to behave the way they did? Because they had no love for Him. Remember, you can't separate the two. If a person truly, I mean truly, if a person truly loves God, they will love the one whom God sent to save us, Jesus. That's it. Oh, I love God. You have these spiritualists today. I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I, I love God. What is God? He's the rock. You mean the, the solid cornerstone that the Scripture talks? No, I'm talking about that rock right over there. Oh, okay. 
All right. Well, people claim to love God all the time, but if they don't love Jesus, they don't love God. There's only one way to come to the Father. It's through Jesus. There's only one way to know the Father. It's through Jesus. There's only one way to love the Father. It's through Jesus. That's it. That's it. He's the bridge. Without Him, there's, there's no way to get to God the Father. If a person truly loves God, they will love the one whom God sent to save us, Jesus. And these guys had no love. There was no love for Jesus. They were plotting to kill Him. That's the op- killing someone is the opposite of love. Oh, it was a love killing. What? It was a mercy killing. <laughs> okay. Quite frankly, I'm glad he was killed. Think about that. If he hadn't been killed, I'd be in my sin. Thank God he was killed. Thank God he was betrayed. Thank God he was abandoned by the Father. Thank God the Father's wrath went on him and not you. But it still saddens me that my disgusting, worthless, useless sin caused the nailing the most beautiful person most beautiful person perfect in every way can't love God unless you love the son in verse 43 dang it Come to the waterworks. Every time. My wife's not in here, so I can do it. it always makes her go, oh my gosh, he's crying. She starts squirming. My son hides his face. I'm so ashamed. In verse 43, Jesus exposes Israel's complete and utter lack of discernment. You know, they had no ability to, to discern what is true and what is false. Throughout Israel's history, many false messiahs appeared. These men would come on the scene and, you know, preach, preach some good messages and rally, and they would kind of rise to power. People would exalt them to power, and then they would lead various revolts against, you know, the Greeks or against the Romans or whoever the adversary was at the time. Whenever one of these guys appeared and rose up, the Jews would respond, the Messiah has come to rescue us. Let's support him all the way. They, it was like these false messiahs would rise up and the people would just totally support him and rally. Not all of them, but many would do that. They'd get on board. And then a couple of years would pass and their Messiah would get captured. The Messiah would get executed, beheaded, and then the revolt would end. It would die out. Prior to Jesus' birth, this happened 64 times in Israel. 64 messiahs, false messiahs, rose up, tried to conquer the adversary, got all the people on board. 64. I read that in a historical account. I was blown away. I thought two or three, pretty dumb, but that's tolerable. 64! 64 times you were duped. Well, you know what? The person who doesn't know Scripture is going to be duped by everything. 
They're blown, blown about by every wind of doctrine, it says in Scripture. Sixty-four times the Jews were very, very quick to put their faith in trust and trust in false messiahs, in mere men who came in their own name. And yet Jesus, who is the true Messiah, comes in His Father's name and they reject Him. Give us more fakes! In fact, they thought Jesus was the biggest fake of them all. Incredible. In verse 44, Jesus exposes the crucial reason for the rejection of Him. They were all about self-glory and the glorification of man. The nation of Israel had become inwardly focused because of unbridled, undealt with religious pride. Become so prideful because of their religion. They used the religion to exalt themselves and to glorify themselves. Look at how well I'm doing, Fred. Hey, Mary, you're doing great at following God's law. This is wonderful. It was just a big self-glory fest going on in Israel at this time. All this religious pride, they were so focused on each other and what each other were doing. And when somebody rose up as a false messiah, they, they gave that person all the accolades and glory. That guy's going to redeem us. That guy's going to save us. It was just pride and, and self-glory, the exaltation of man, really nothing more than what we call humanism. And Jesus rebuked them by basically saying, you won't glorify me because you're too busy glorifying yourselves. That's the problem. Verses 45 through 47, Jesus tells them He doesn't need to bring an accusation against them before the Father who sent Him because their hero and champion, Moses, does that for Him. I don't have to say anything to the Father. Moses is already taking care of that. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch. Moses prophesied about Jesus in these books. Genesis 3, 15, 12, 3, 22, 18, 17, 9, 21, 12, 49, 10, Numbers 24, 17, Deuteronomy 18, 15, yada, 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 yada. Moses spent a great deal of time prophesying about Jesus. And Jesus' point here is very simple. If the religious leaders truly believed the writings of their hero and champion Moses, because they exalted Moses to the highest level, if they believed what he had written, as they claimed to do, they would believe in the one whom Moses wrote about, Jesus himself. The problem is they focused on some of Moses' writings rather than all of Moses' writings, right? Oh, they loved the law. They studied the law. They enforced the law. They built a hedge of protection with their oral traditions around the law so no one could even get to the law. Obey these things, not the actual law. These things will protect us from screwing up the law. They did some crazy, crazy stuff. They exalted the giver of the law, not God himself, but Moses. In verse 45, Jesus actually rebukes them for putting their hope in Moses. You have set your hope on Moses. Verse 45, look at it. He rebuked them for turning Moses and the law into idols and objects of worship. Verse 47, Jesus closes His incredible discourse with a rhetorical question that exposed their ignorance of Scripture and total inability 
to discern spiritual truth. Keep in mind, these are the religious leaders of Israel. (laughs) Jesus said, if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't believe, you love this guy and you read him and you study the things that he he wrote and you focus on him and you exalt him and and you love the law that he recorded and all that and and, and all this. And and don't you understand, religious leaders, that he prophesied about me all throughout his writings? If you truly believe what he wrote, you'd believe in the one he wrote about, me. But because of unbelief, hardened hearts, religion... Bad attitude, self-glory, self-righteousness. It wasn't going to happen. Closing. It's coffee. It's a weird-looking thing, but it keeps it hot all day. It's also a missile launcher. No, it's not. Countless people in the world today are just like the religious leaders in our passage. Countless people in the world today are just like the religious leaders in our passage. They have set their hope on religious constructs and idols. They are trying to earn their way with God through piety and good deeds. I have, therefore, added a fifth witness to this sermon, which is not mentioned in our text, but in other passages. Jesus now calls a fifth witness. And, of course, He calls this fifth witness from other texts. This one He calls not for the purpose of proving His divinity, but for the purpose of reaching those who are lost in sin and false religion. The fifth witness is the witness of Jesus' disciples, you and me. And our passage is Mark 16, 15, where Jesus commanded, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. As fifth witnesses and disciples of Jesus, we are to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to the world. We are to tell people that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried to settle our accounts, and rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. We are to tell people that there is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. We are to tell people that through Jesus, the God-man, we can receive eternal life, which is what? A mercy-based, grace-centered, love-saturated, joy-filled, perpetual relationship with God. We are to tell people that eternal life is in accordance with Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Where we live where we work, where we shop, except on Black Friday, where we attend classes, where we congregate, that is our mission field. When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? 
And if you say to yourself, it's been a long time or I don't think I ever have, I'd ask this, what is holding you back? Fear? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. What is holding you back? Inexperience? The Samaritan woman had basically no experience, but she still invited people to meet Jesus. What is holding you back? Your past? We don't live in the past. We live in the Holy Spirit and in the present moment. What is holding you back? Laziness? God detests a sluggard. Stop living like a sluggard and get to work. What is holding you back? No time? Prioritize and make time. For the days are evil. What is holding you back? What is holding you back? Or maybe you have been a faithful witness of late. Well done. Maybe you've been gossiping the gospel and just talking about what Jesus has done for you with somebody. Well done. Maybe it's with a family member. Maybe it's with somebody at work. Well done. Keep putting the gospel out there. But remember, remember to leave the results in God's hands. We can't save anyone. Only He can. Amen? When's the last time? You think about the time of year. I'm going to come up back up at the end of the service and talk about this a little bit more, but you think about the time of year that it is. It's Christmas. What a perfect time to share the greatest gift of all time, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that.